Okay, I believe you have a little handout. <laughs> I'm be, I started to say serenaded by angels, but we made this. Uh, they going to a party. Oh, are they? Okay, if you would, look up here just a minute. We're going to have this quick review, and it all makes sense when you get, begin to put it together. It's real easy to distinguish what the covenants are and what the covenants are for. So God made the first covenant back in Genesis in the Garden of Eden and what, into what Adam and Eve were to do, and, and that's called the Edenic Covenant. So we we'll go all the way back to Adam and Eve, and he tells them, remember he gave them, uh, he made the covenant, told them what they could eat, what not to eat, and one thing specific, he told them not to eat from a certain tree that was in the center of the garden. So that was the, the Edenic covenant. And then you have Adam's sin. You remember Adam's sin and because of what, uh, what he did, because of that sin, uh, we had another new covenant between God and the human race. And we call that the Adamic covenant. And that was followed by the flood and the Noahic covenant that God made uh, with should be uh, Noah uh, insert Noah there under with that carries up to our time. So uh, uh, you had the Adamic covenant, Adam sinned because what he did, another new covenant. What was that covenant? If you eat of the fruit, you're going to do what? You're going to die. Then death was pronounced upon all men. And so when they partake of the fruit, the Edenic covenant uh, was done away with, you have a new covenant, and that's an Adamic covenant, and we're, ha we're under that Adamic covenant now because of Adam's sin, because we sin, we die, we die a physical death, and without Christ we die a spiritual death, and then that covenant was followed by the Noahic covenant, and God made a covenant with Noah after he destroyed the world uh, with a flood, he made a covenant that he would uh, never destroy the world again by water. And to seal that covenant, he put a rainbow uh, in the sky, in the clouds, the Bible says. Okay, So that carries us up to the Noahic covenant. Then uh, if you're going to deal with a nation of people, we talked about this last week, you have to have certain requirements. And so you have to have a geographical area of land, homeland. So we have the Palestinian covenant. So when you hear the word Palestinian, that's not speaking of a group of people, but that's speaking of a geographical area that God promised his people. Okay? So that's the Palestinian covenant that described the land of Palestine, i.e. the land of Canaan, the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey. And so God distributed or put boundaries for his people because they were a nation. Remember, he chose Abraham. He picked Abraham up from a, a pagan family. Abraham believed God, placed his faith in God, became a righteous person from Abraham. Um, then you have the, the nation Israel uh, began to form from him. And then that area of land... The geographical area became known as the Palestinian Covenant. So you can see how it's all coming together. Then we talked about the, in order to control the religious system, 
we have the Mosaic Covenant. It's also referred to as the law. The Mosaic Covenant, referred to as the law. So you have a geographical area, you have a group of people in order to, to control, regulate their religious system. You have the Mosaic Covenant, and it was divided into three parts. One part was the law, second part was temple worship, and that, that dealt with sacrifices and, and special feast days. And then you had how to deal with your neighbor. That was the social part of the, of the, the uh, Mosaic Law. And so uh, uh, we covered that last week. And so this is a covenant, the Davidic covenant. That's what we're looking at tonight. This is the covenant that God made with David, the king of Israel, who brings Israel, you might say, out of antiquity and brings them to the glory of the kingdom and followed by his son Solomon. Uh, and so it's all about David, promises made to David, and those that follow after David. The promises about the king and the kingdom and the nation of Israel are under the Davidic covenant. And the reason being that Christ comes from the lineage of David, and he's constantly referred to in the Scripture as the son of David. Now, we, you know, you, you may come across uh, in Scripture where it mentions the son of David, and people would, would say, well, how's he the son of David? This sets up how uh, we know that he was the son of David, the lineage of David. Um, so Jesus Christ... Promises about the king, the nation, Israel's on the Davidic covenant, the reasons being that Christ comes from the lineage of David. He's constantly referred to in the scripture as the son of David. He also is also the son of Abraham because David follows Abraham. But we have primarily throughout scripture the reference to Jesus Christ, the son of David. is the fulfillment of those promises made to David that will bring about the earthly kingdom. Now, we believe uh, uh, that there's going to be a millennial reign one day. Kingdom here on earth, Christ's going to reign for a thousand years. And this is what it's speaking. It was talking about David's reign. And, uh, and it uh, uh, prophesies that one day there's going to be an uh, earthly kingdom. And we'll have Jesus Christ, the King of Kings, that will rule over this kingdom. And so that's what the scripture foretells and that's what we're looking for and so now I want you to turn to Psalm 89 and uh, tonight uh, I'm gonna let I'm gonna let uh, Les Feldick go into this uh, Davidic covenant and um, I hope you take good notes write down scriptures but he'll he'll mention some some great information that will help you in the future to understand uh, how Christ is, the, is the, uh, the future king of this earthly kingdom. Look at Psalm 89, and Feldick is going to pick up Psalm 89, and we'll start with verse 20. So take real good notes, and he's going to finish this session on the divinic covenant. So let's just go back and review the last part of our previous program. And we were in Psalms 89. And let's just drop in at verse oh, 20. 
Verse 20, oh yeah, Irish has just reminded me, this is the first part of book 64. So those of you out in television, if you want anything concerning these next few programs, these will be entailed in book number 64. And uh, that will also include, of course, then the next two tapings. All right, Psalms 89, let's drop in at verse 20, where the writer says, this isn't written by, by David, by the way, but the writer says, I have found David my servant with my holy oil, I have anointed him. Now, who is really speaking through the writer? Well, God is. This is God speaking through the writer of this Psalms. And he has found David, the king, his servant. And God is the one that anointed him as the king of Israel. All right, verse 21. With whom my hand shall be established, my arm also shall strengthen. In other words, God's going to be in total control of this young man's rule and reign over Israel. Verse 22, the enemy shall not exact upon him, nor the son of wickedness afflict him. I will beat down his foes before his faith. Verse, let's just go for sake of time, 25, I will set his hand also in the sea and his right hand in the river. Now remember in our last program, I said, now we've got to be careful. Could David do that? No, now we're leaping the centuries, the millennia in fact, to the son of David, Jesus the Christ, the Messiah of Israel. And so you've got to watch the language. Could David put one foot in the Mediterranean and another one in the River Jordan or something like that? No. But symbolically, Christ does. And so you go back and forth. All right, verse 27. This couldn't be David, so it has to be the son of David. Also, I will make him my firstborn higher than the kings of the earth. Well, there's only one that's higher than even David and Solomon, so who would it be? The son of David, the son of God, the Christ, see? All right, well, I think we made note of all that in our previous program. Now verse 28. Now we're back to King David himself. My mercy I will keep for him forevermore. And my covenant, this Davidic covenant, shall stand fast with him. Now here comes the offspring of David. His seed also I will make to endure forever, and his throne, the throne of David, there in Jerusalem, as the days of heaven. And then he comes down and he gives the possibilities. Verse 31, that if they break my statutes and keep not my commandments, then I will visit their transgression with the rod. He will chastise. And chastisement usually came with invading armies, see? All right, verse 33. But in spite of Israel's failure, in spite of the nation's unbelief, will God give up on Israel? Never. Never. Never will God pull away from his covenant people. All right? So he says, Nevertheless, my loving kindness I will not utterly take from him, nor suffer my faithfulness to fail. Verse 34. Now this is God speaking again. My covenant I will not break. Is that what a lot of these people are saying? No. They're saying God broke it. That after 70 AD, the Jews disappeared from the scene. The Jews that we call Jews today aren't Jews at all, according to their line of thinking. They're imposters. Well, then that throws this book into nothing but a trash bin of lies. 
because God says he would not break it. And I prefer to believe the word of God. All right. So he says, I will not utterly take from him nor suffer my faithfulness to fail. My covenant I will not break. Now verse 35, once I have sworn by thy holiness that I will not lie to David. God cannot lie. He cannot go back on his word. Now verse 36, his seed, David's seed, the nation of Israel, shall endure how long? Forever. That's eternity. It shall be established forever as the moon and as a faithful witness in heaven. Now that's just God reaffirming these promises made through what we call the Davidic covenant. All right, let's move on because I want to finish up on David in this half hour if at all possible, even though we can't exhaust it. Come over with me now a moment to Isaiah chapter 9, where again we have David connected to the king who will be ruling during the millennium, that is, God the Son, Jesus of Nazareth. And here we have it so explicitly expressed. Isaiah chapter 9, verses you're all acquainted with. We use them quite often. Verse 6, Isaiah 9, verse 6. Again, I've got to wait till I find it. Our, our listening audience lets us know it all the time. They appreciate if we give them time to find these scriptures. Okay? Isaiah 9, verse 6, For unto us a child is born, unto us, and again, always emphasize, who are the us? Israel. We're not talking to Gentiles back here. This is God dealing with Israel. For unto us a son is given, and the government, that is, of this coming glorious earthly kingdom, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, this one that is coming, this son that was born in Israel. And his name shall be called, here they come, Wonderful, Consular, the Mighty God, the Creator of everything, the Everlasting Father. Now here we have, even though they are separate personalities, they act as one God. All right, so here we have God the Son referred to even as the Father, like he did in John 14. Philip, have I been so long time with you, and yet hast thou not known? If you have seen me, you've seen who? The Father. All right, here we got them lumped together the same way. It's God the Son, and he's the Consular, but he's also the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Now here comes the part that connects us with King David. The increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. Now, even though the thousand years ends, remember, in time as we know it, yet it slips right up into the eternal, as we saw, I think, in our last program, because in Revelation 21, what do we got? New heavens and a new what? A new earth. So the whole program just simply slips up out of the thousand years in time into eternity. And I think we're going to have that same separation between Israel and the church for all eternity. I can see nothing else in Scripture. But here we're dealing with the Jewish end of it. That earthly kingdom is going to slip right up into the new earth of eternity. And it's going to be upon the throne of David. See? 
there in Mount Zion in Jerusalem, on the throne of David upon his kingdom, to order it, to establish it with judgment. Now remember, I'm always reminding that word judge or judgment in this light always means a benevolent government. A good government is judgment. All right, so he's going to establish it with a benevolent government and with justice from henceforth forever. See, not just for a thousand years, but for forever. All right, now let's just jump all the way up, if I may, to Matthew chapter 1. And we're also going to be looking at it in a, another program this afternoon when we deal with Abraham. But we want to see that, again, David is still kept in contact with his coming Messiah and his rule and reign over this earthly kingdom. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. And you can see immediately why I'm going to come back when we deal with Abraham. Matthew 1, verse 1. The book of the generation of Jesus the Christ. The son of whom? David. And the son of Abraham but he's also the Son of God. We can never take that away. But our, here is his connection then, earthly kingdom-wise, with Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation, but also then with King David, according to these covenants that he made with David. And so we have to understand that all of Scripture ties these concepts together. All right, now for the few moments that we have left already, time goes fast, Let's just come all the way up to, well, I suppose I should stop at uh, Luke chapter 1. Let's stop at Luke 1 a minute. I think we got time for that. Luke chapter 1, and we've looked at these verses time and time again, where Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, who was in the priesthood, laboring in the temple in Jerusalem, and that he had been stricken dumb or unable to speak at the onset of Elizabeth's pregnancy with John the Baptist. All right, but now little John is born, and the Jews are all shook up because they can recognize the miraculousness of it all. So when they asked Elizabeth what his name would be, she said, John, that just didn't swallow very well. So they went and found Zacharias at the temple complex and asked him, and on a writing tablet, he said, his name shall be John. That's all up there in verse 63. All right, he gets his voice back. And now let's come down to verse 67. And his father, that is John the Baptist's father, Zacharias. I'm in Luke chapter 1, verse 67. And his father, Zacharias, was filled with the Holy Spirit. Now I've got to emphasize that verse. Otherwise... This just sounds like Jewish wishful thinking, and that's what people would put on it. But it isn't. This is the Spirit of God speaking these truths through the lips of the priest Zacharias. All right, now look what he says, and watch it carefully. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. We're not talking about the whole human race here. We're talking about the covenant people, Israel. For he hath visited and redeemed his people, Israel. We're not talking about the rest of the world yet. Now verse 69. 
and he hath raised up a horn of salvation for us. Not for the whole world. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Well, why is this all limited to David and Abraham? Because it's the covenant promises, see? And I've been stressing that in all the years I've been teaching. Why did Jesus not have anything to do with the Gentiles in his earthly ministry? They weren't in the covenants. And only the covenant people were in a relationship with Jesus in his earthly ministry, with the two exceptions. And so this is what we have to understand, that he came in response to the covenant promises. Maybe this is as good a place as any. I was wondering where in the afternoon I could bring it in, and I may again. But that's as far as I need to go in those for now. I may come back to it later. But come all the way up with me to Romans chapter 15, a verse that I use over and over, because here it's from the pen of the Apostle Paul, Romans chapter 15. And this just blows everything away that says that Jesus ministered to the whole world. No, he did not become an object of faith to the whole world until he finished the work of the cross. And until that time, it's fulfillment of the covenants. Romans 15, verse 8. The Apostle Paul is writing merely to give us some understanding that most of Christendom doesn't have yet. It's unbelievable. And they refuse. They don't want to see it. But look what it says. Verse 8. Now I say that Jesus Christ was a minister of the circumcision, Israel, for the truth of God. It had to happen. It was in God's eternal blueprint. And so Jesus Christ, for the truth of God, came for what purpose? To confirm or fulfill, bring to fruition, the promises made to the fathers. Well, where were the promises? In the covenants. All these covenants, after we get past the Abrahamic covenant, they're all God dealing with Israel on promises and prophecy. And there's no way anybody can take them away or mix them up with the Gentile world. It flies in the face of this book. And so Christ came to fulfill all these covenant promises. But now we know that Israel rejected them when they rejected him. And God didn't break the covenants. He didn't cast the covenants aside but he merely postponed them. And I'm going to refer to that in a later program this afternoon. All right, now we've only got five minutes left already. Come back with me quickly then to Acts chapter 2, where we have almost the last, not total, because Paul refers to him once or twice. But the best reference we have to David now is in Acts chapter 2, when Peter is preaching on the day of Pentecost. And, of course, Peter is going to refer to Christ as the son of David, but he's going to use the Psalms to prove that this wasn't David himself who had been reincarnated or anything like that, but that the Psalms was speaking of Jesus of Nazareth. See that? All right, Acts chapter 2, come down to verse 25. Acts 2, verse 25. And this is Peter, remember, preaching on the day of Pentecost. 
to that huge crowd of Jews. And he says, For David speaketh concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is on my right hand that I should not be moved. Verse 26, Therefore did my heart rejoice, my tongue was glad, moreover also my flesh shall rest in hope. Why? Because Christ would not end in the tomb. He's going to be raised from that. Verse 27, Because thou shalt not leave my soul in hell. Now this is again Christ speaking through the prophet. He would not be left in hell or Hades or Sheol, which was, of course, the paradise side, not the torment. Neither wilt thou suffer thy Holy One to see corruption. He never decayed and uh, began to go back to the dust of the earth like a normal human would have because he was divine. All right, then I'm going to come down to verse 29. Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David. See? That he is dead and buried and his sepulcher is with us today. In fact, just a few weeks ago, some of you were with us. We were up to what is called the tomb of David. And uh, I'm sure it's not in the exact place that the ancient tomb was, but nevertheless, it makes a good tourist attraction and we all go there. All right, so even though his tomb is with us yet today, Peter says, therefore, verse 30, David was a prophet. He was foretelling a future event. And so being a prophet, he knew that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins. Now what are we talking about? The genealogy coming down through history that originated with first Abraham and then later with King David. And that genealogy goes all the way up to the time of Christ himself. All right. So now then back to verse 30 again, that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ. We're speaking of the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth and that he would sit on his, David's, throne. See? All right, now then verse 31. He, David, seeing this before, spoke of the resurrection of Christ as a prophet, that his soul, that is Christ now, at his death, the three days and three nights, that he went down into paradise, which was called Sheol or hell or Hades, remember. All right, his soul was not left in hell, neither did his flesh see corruption. Why? Because he was of a divine origin, even though born of the human mother. All right, now then, I've got to keep going just a little bit further. Verse 32, this Jesus God hath raised up, whereof we are all witnesses, Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted and having received the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has shed forth this which you now see and hear for David. Not the King David of a thousand years ago. David is not ascended into the heavens. But who is? The Lord himself, Jesus the Christ. And God the Father back in Psalms 110 verse 1 said, Come, sit at my right hand until I make thy foes thy footstool. Now, to make sure that you understand who is all this directed to, verse 36. And why in the world can't people read? Verse 36, therefore, let the whole race of Adam. Is that what your Bible says? No, it doesn't say that. What does it say? 
Therefore, let the whole house of Israel, and not just two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, like some would try to tell you, but how many? All of them. All the tribes are under God's dealing for end-time scenario. And so Peter says, even on the day of Pentecost then, therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus who came through the lineage of Abraham and David, and he has been made both Lord and Christ. All right, now let's just recap in the seconds that are left. Through these covenant promises, beginning with Abraham, God has been dealing with the nation of Israel, bringing them all the way up to the appearance of their Messiah. They rejected him, but God is still going to come back and fulfill all these covenant promises, as we're going to see in our next program when he brings about the next covenant on the board, the new. For Israel, it won't become a reality for Israel until they have the king and the kingdom, until Christ sets up his millennial reign. Then says we're going to then we're going to show that what that relationship is uh, with the new covenant, what our relationship is. Remember, the covenants were first set up for God's people, Israel, and we're going to receive kind of an overflow from this new covenant. But uh, the other covenants were set up between God and his his people. Some believe that we as members of the body of Christ are not covenant people. We are not under the covenant per se. We're merely, we're merely enjoying all the ramifications of what God did to fulfill the new covenant. So turn to Jeremiah. We're going to look at Jeremiah. We've, we've been in Jeremiah from time to time, Bible study, and today, and but we want to look at tonight at Jeremiah 31, 31, we've dealt with Jeremiah 29, we've dealt with Jeremiah 33, and so tonight, if you would, look at Jeremiah 31, and we're going to look at Jeremiah 31, Part A. Find that in your Bible. Jeremiah 31. God's Word says, <clears throat> Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And so uh, what we're going to do, we're going to take about a five-minute break, let you stretch, and we're going to come back with uh, this last part, part two, with uh, Les Feldick as he speaks about this new covenant that he's going to make with Israel. So let's take about five minutes and we'll come back in about uh, 20 minutes till, say. If you need to stretch, get a drink of water, use the restroom, whatever. To next week, uh, when we start, begin the Abrahamic covenant which really affects the end times as we know it so uh, uh, take a listen to this as we end our session tonight Jeremiah <coughs> chapter 31 
And we're going to jump in at verse 31. Again, this is a series of verses that we use a lot. Jeremiah 31, 31. And again, I beg people, just read what it says. Not what someone has told you they think it says, but what does it really say? All right, Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord. Now, this is the word of God. I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. Can you make that any plainer? I don't see how you can. It doesn't say with a whole race. It doesn't say with a whole world. He's making a new covenant with Israel. And Israel means Israel. All right, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. That was at a time when the kingdom was split, remember? Now verse 32. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which covenant they broke. And although I was a husband unto them, saith the Lord. Now what covenant did they break? Law. My, they broke it over and over and over and over. And yet God never gave up on them. And so the whole concept is now that under this new covenant, they won't be breaking it. They won't be tempted to rebel. They will not be disobedient because they're going to be in a heaven on earth environment. Satan is locked up and there will be no temptations to disobey. But on top of that, the result of the new covenant on the Jewish individual will be so domineering that they won't have to worry about breaking anything. And we'll see that in just a minute. All right, let's go on. Verse 33, but this shall be the covenant that I will, that's future, hasn't happened yet, but we think we're getting close, that when Christ returns and sets up his kingdom, then this covenant will become an everyday reality. All right, so he says, this covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord, I will put the law not on frontlets on their forehead, not on their doorposts, but where? In their heart. He will write it on their heart, see? And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Now tonight, yes, Israel is still under God's covenant promises. He's watching over them, but they're not his people today. They're anything but. They're secular. They're in unbelief for the most part. Not all, but for the most part and they are not his people. As he spoke to Moses, they're your people, remember? And Moses said, no, God, I don't want them, they're your people. Well, you see, it was because of their rank disobedience, but that's all going to end. All right, read on. Verse 34, they shall teach no more every man his neighbor. In other words, they're not going to have to sit down and constantly be studying the Torah like yeshiva students do today. They won't have to study and try to figure out what is this verse. They'll have full understanding because it will be written in their hearts. All right, reading on in verse 34. And every man his brother saying, Know the Lord. Why? For they shall all know me. See? 
It isn't like today where we have to be concerned about a lost loved one or a lost neighbor, and Israel was no different or is no different. My, the Jews for Jesus people are constantly handing out tracts and trying to win lost Jews. Well, that'll no longer be necessary. Every Jew in the kingdom will be a dyed-in-the-wool, heart-made believer. All right? Verse 34, reading on, They shall all know me from the least of them, and the greatest, saith the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. They are going to be in total relationship with their Jehovah God, who will then, of course, be also their King and their Messiah and the Redeemer. Now, we've used these last three, four verses so often, I'm not going to take time now today, but these next verses are another guarantee that nothing, nothing will ever remove Israel from the scene. They are here and will be forever. My, when we were there a few weeks ago and we see all those four-lane highways, wasn't it amazing, Ike? I mean, just like any other great city and bustling. My, you can't imagine the activity in Israel. And uh, it's just all because God's promises are coming to the fore. All right, now let's just jump over to chapter 32 for just a second, where the prophet repeats it, basically. So we won't spend a lot of time on these verses. But drop over to chapter 32, verse 37, honey. Verse 37. And that's what we've seen happening now these last 50 years. Right in front of our eyes, we've seen it happen. Behold, God says, I will gather them out of all countries. Now, who can refute that? My, they've been coming from all over the world into their ancient homeland. Whether I have driven them in mine anger. In other words, it was a chastising act of God that took them out of the land after the crucifixion in 70 A.D., and scattered them into every nation under heaven. Remember, we looked at the promises and the prophecies a while back in Deuteronomy. Way back at the time of Moses, he wrote that they would be scattered into every nation under heaven and God would bring them back. All right, here Jeremiah is prophesying the same thing. I will bring them again, verse 37. I will bring them again into this place and I will cause them to dwell safely. Now, they're not dwelling safely yet, but they're... A lot of them are already there. Now, verse 38, this hasn't happened yet. It's all waiting for the return of Christ. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. And again, verse 39, I will give them one heart and one way, and they may fear or respect or reverence me forever for the good of them as well as their children after them. And now, verse 40, and I will make a what? An everlasting covenant. God will never let go of the nation of Israel. And once this kingdom economy comes in, it's going to feed right up into eternity. And they will forever be then His covenant people. All right, now I'm going to take you back to show you the difference between having these things written in their heart and the way Moses left it in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6. Now, I'd just like to show the comparison 
that they, even as God's covenant people in history, have never come close to the promises of the new covenant. Deuteronomy chapter 6. And since we're so close to it, I'm going to read verse 4. Because this is what the Jew, even today, if he has any semblance of biblical belief at all, he will hang on this verse. And of course, this is where they have an argument with us with a triune God. And they say there's only one God. Well, what they don't comprehend is that it's three persons in one. But they go back to this verse. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, all thy soul, all thy might. All right, now verse 6. This was the everyday condition of even the believing Jew in Moses' day. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thy heart. Now watch it. This isn't mentioned in the New Covenant. And thou shalt teach them diligently to thy children. Thou shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thy house and when thou walkest by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up. Thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thy hand, and they shall be as frontlets between thy eyes. And thou shalt write them upon the posts of thy house and on thy gates. Why? To be constantly reminded of what the Word of God is saying. But see, when you come under the New Covenant, that won't be necessary. It'll be on their heart. They won't have to read it and remind themselves and talk to their neighbor about it. It's going to be as automatic as daylight following dark. Now, that's the vast difference then between the New Covenant and the Mosaic or the Old Covenant. All right, now let's jump all the way up to the New Testament because that's what we like to do is not just stay in the Old but compare it also with things in the New. Come up with me to Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8. And I'll have to look a minute, honey, to see what verse I want. Chapter 8, verse 6. <clears throat> Hebrews, chapter 8, verse 6. And I'm convinced that Paul is the writer of this letter to the Hebrews, but on the other hand, always remember, who is he writing to? He's writing to Jews, see? All right, verse 6. But now, now this is what I'm hoping we'll cover in our next few tapings are the but nows in Scripture. Here's one of them. But now, that is after this work of the cross has been accomplished, but now he hath obtained a more excellent ministry by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant which was established upon better promises. Now that's one of Paul's favorite words throughout the letter of Hebrews, better. Now verse 7, for if the first covenant, the covenant of law, the Ten Commandments, and the, the temple worship, and the priesthood, if that first covenant had been faultless, or if it had been perfect, then there should be no place for the second, naturally. If something is okay, you don't fix it. What's our little cliche? If it ain't broke, don't fix it. Well, it's the same context here. If the first covenant of law had been perfect, there'd be no need for a new one. But it wasn't. See? It was full of weaknesses. And we'll see it in just a minute. 
All right? Verse 8, for finding fault with them, its imperfections, for finding fault with them, he saith, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. See, now this is back before even Jeremiah uh, mentions it. And this is where Paul is going back to. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Now he's quoting from Jeremiah 31, which we just read. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day and took them by the hand and so on and so forth. Now verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. Now it has nothing to say about the Gentile world. This is strictly God dealing with the house of David, the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, and I will put my laws into their mind, I will be to them a God and they shall be my people. They won't have to do like Moses said, teach every man his neighbor, and so on and so forth. Now verse down 13. In that he saith a new covenant. He has made the first one, what? Old, worn out. Now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. Why? because it's no longer of any use. It's worn out. All right, now let's back up a little bit and pick up a couple contexts. Galatians chapter 4. Because I think a lot of people think that the law was perfect. Well, that's fine if you think so. The Ten Commandments certainly are perfect. There's nothing amiss in any of those, but still the whole function of law did not change anybody's heart. They could be a law keeper and still be as lost as lost can be. All right, Galatians chapter 4, now verse 9. Galatians 4, verse 9. But now, see there's another one. Oh, I got all kinds of them. But now, after you have known God, in other words, come into a real salvation experience based, of course, now on Paul's gospel of the work of the cross. But now after you've known God, or rather are known of God, how turn you again to the weak and beggarly elements whereunto you desire again to be in bondage? Well, now what's Paul saying? When you've got something so perfect as the gospel that was according to the death, burial, and resurrection, brings in new life, why do you want to go back to something that's less than perfect, which was the sacrificial system of the law? All right, let's back up a little further. 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Almost have to read verse 5 in order to understand verse 6. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 5. Not that we're sufficient of ourselves to think anything as of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God. Without Him, we're nothing. <clears throat> All right, now verse 6. <clears throat> this same God 
the same God who has saved us now through our faith in the gospel has also made us able ministers of a new testament or covenant, not of the letter, which is Paul's term for the law, but of the spirit, because now the very core of our, of our life, the very core of our salvation has been brought about by the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. And here's the reason. The letter, the law, doesn't give life. It what? It kills. The law could never give life to anybody. Never did and doesn't now and never will. All the law could do was show a man his sin. And most of Christendom hasn't got it yet today. That's all the law can do is show our sin. There's no life in the law. But when we turn away from the law after being convicted by it, what does give life? The Holy Spirit. And so now in this age of grace, and Israel will experience it in the kingdom, now when the Holy Spirit imparts eternal life, it's not based on the law, it's based on the work of the cross. Because the law, now read the next verse, verse 7. But the law was the ministration of death. Oh, people don't like that. That's not what they've always heard. But that's all the law could do. The law killed. Why? Because it condemned. And if a person was condemned, what was the punishment? Eternal doom. And this consequently became a ministration of life. Nobody could be saved by keeping the law. Even in Israel's history, the law didn't save them. It was their faith in carrying out what God said to do as a lawbreaker, but it never saved them. And this is what we have to understand, that even today, you know, when they make all this commotion about the Ten Commandments, well and good, but the Ten Commandments never saved anybody. All they do is convict. All right? And so here it is. The ministration of death, verse 7, written and engraven in stone was glorious, Paul says, but now it's been done away with because of the cross. So even though it was glorious that the children of Israel could not steadfastly behold the face of Moses, for the glory of his countenance, that is, when he had been in the presence of God and received the tables of stone. But that glory is to be what? Done away. Why? Because like Hebrews said, when something grows old and it's worn out, what do you do with it? You cast it away. Okay, so now in the following six minutes, we have to clarify, if we're not under the new covenant, then what is the basis for our salvation today under grace? Well, to put it in a nutshell, the new covenant itself could never become a reality until God the Son went the way of the cross. It had to be even for Israel. Now, that's one thing I want to clarify. In order for the new covenant to become a reality written on the heart of a Jew during the kingdom, it had to be based on that eternal sacrifice, that shed blood that was accomplished there on the cross of Calvary. But through his power of resurrection and imparting new life, in order to fulfill the covenant promise made to Israel, he now, as, as I call it, a splashover. We're not under the direct covenant promise. 
but we are enjoying everything that was done on Israel's behalf now becomes applicable for us. So consequently, how do we attain eternal life? By believing that this Messiah, Redeemer, and this Son of God that presented himself to Israel, who was rejected, crucified, and raised from the dead, now becomes our salvation. By believing that plus nothing. And even though we're not under the covenant, we are enjoying all the excesses of it before Israel even comes into the picture. All right, now let's just... When Christ comes back uh, after the rapture, sets up his millennial reign uh, for a thousand years, reigns over this earth uh, with perfect peace, just like he intended at the very beginning. And that new covenant then will be for Israel uh, during that period of time and for, for us here also as we spend that thousand years. And so I hope you've learned something tonight in regards to the Davidic covenant, the new covenant. And when we come back uh, next week, we're going to look at the begin studying the Abrahamic covenant, and uh, that uh, gives us so much information about what we're seeing going on today and how we're to be ready uh, for the coming of the Lord. And, and so it's so everything hinges, uh, as far as we're concerned, on the, on the Abrahamic covenant. And so I hope you're learning something about the covenants. I believe in all right now we've studied eight covenants. And so if someone asks you about the the Adamic Covenant or the Edenic Covenant or the Covenant of, uh, with Noah, I believe you'll be able to tell them what that's speaking of or you can uh, be able to explain it. So anyway, thank you for being here tonight. Remember, be back Wednesday night. Pray for our graduating class, graduating from Phil Campbell on Thursday, I believe 6.30, is that what they... 6, 6 o'clock Thursday, so... Uh, I need to get that time correct because I don't want to miss that graduation. Let's stand. We're going to be dismissed. Thank you for being here tonight. And I hope uh, you've learned something. I sure have, and I hope you have too. Heavenly Father, I thank you for each person here tonight. Thank you for what we've, what we've learned, Lord, and how your Spirit has taught us tonight. Thank you for Les Feldick. I thank you, Lord, for how you've worked with him over the years and how he just rightly divides the word of truth and separates it. And Lord, where we can see very clearly what's in store, Lord, in the coming days. Thank you for your covenant with your people. Thank you, Lord, for the Lord Jesus who came and died on the cross for our sins, was buried and rose again. And those who put their faith and trust in him uh, are promised and do have eternal life. So we rejoice with that. We look forward to your coming. This world is a terrible place right now, Lord. And so I know it's been bad ever since uh, man sinned and uh, broke the, uh, the covenant there in the garden. But Lord, I know sin is just completely seems like it's taken over the world. So we look forward one day, Lord, for you coming back for your people. We're looking forward, Lord, for your kingdom reign. 
And Lord, we just we thank you for saving us. Lord, for dying on that cross that through you and only you we can have eternal life. Help us, we pray, to be willing to be the, the salt, the light, the testimony that you've called us to be. And we make this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.